you look left and look right, say to your neighbor, you want a little something? <laughs> We're talking about hope for a few weeks, and um, this is actually a very important thing uh, in the life of our church. And I, I know where I, I want to take you in this series, what I hope happens inside of your heart and through your life as a result of this series. I'm not, I'm not entirely certain that you want to go there, uh, but I'm going to try and take you there. Now, there's a really weird vehicle that we use uh, every Sunday to do just that, and I want to uh, pull back the curtain a little bit on, on my world, if I could, for a second, and describe it to you, because the, the weird vehicle that gets used is this thing that we call uh, a sermon, this message that I'm, I'm giving right now. Uh, again, let me just help you see if you can see my world for just a second. Just imagine, if you would, at the end of your work week, as a part of your work week at the end, you had to plan and give and deliver a talk. And everyone who listened to that talk was going to judge you and your company on the basis of the quality of that talk. And then imagine you had to do that every single week, right? That's a little bit about the pressure of a, of a sermon. Now, I, I think about this all week long. I don't, if you did this, you would hopefully do the same. And I can sit in a meeting, and I'm on my mind somewhere else. So I, okay, I get the end of the week. I gotta give that talk again, and I, I'm a little distracted sometimes. And I, I think that I, I'm all week long. I'm thinking about it, and so I know that when you come here, you haven't thought a thing about what we're talking about today, uh, and you're gonna think about it for maybe 30 minutes, maybe half of it. You're gonna be wondering what's for lunch. Uh, so I know I've got I gotta uh, fight that. But my my goal in in, in any sermon is to help you make a change in your life, and so I have to uh, somehow convince you or help you see uh, maybe a shortcoming in your life and show you the solution in Christ and then move you to take a step, and and where I want to take you in this series, if you'll go along on the journey, is that you would become a person who's like Jesus, who who was more of a hope dealer than Jesus. Now, I'm aware as I do all this how temporary my task is uh, as a pastor. Uh, I'm not saying that to say, oh, wait, I'm leaving. I'm not leaving. I'm just very, very aware of how temporary it is. Your life is temporary. The scriptures say that we're like a breath. We're like a vapor. Uh, Our lives are like grass that grows up and then withers away. It's just so temporary. Everything's so quick. It all happens so fast. Uh, And and I'm realizing in the middle of that something about my own life that I I wonder if you see as well. And this is what I'm kind of noticing about my life at this stage in my life and my journey. Uh, I'm realizing that so much of my life, and what I mean by that is so much of the quality of my life is determined by how I think about my life. Maybe you noticed that about yourself. See, here's what I used to do. I used to think that my problems were out there. If I got the right education, it would all make sense. Uh, If I had the right boss, then I would have the right environment that I could flourish in. If my kids or my wife would just do this or that, then everything would be 
okay with me. But here's what I'm realizing. Here's what I'm coming to, and maybe you're coming to this too. I'm realizing that my problems are mostly inside of me. I'm my problem. Growing up, uh, before we had the New International Version, there's all these translations of the scriptures. One of the most common, uh, for a number of years in English-speaking countries, was the King James Version. How many of you are familiar with the King James Version of the Bible? It's if you think Shakespeare and the Bible had a baby, that's the King James Bible, right? <laughs> thither thou goest, whither thou blessest, you know, all that kind of stuff. And if you grew up around that, you're kind of like, I don't talk like that, how does that work? But there was this... This line in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, that if you, when you actually translate it into modern English, it's actually a mistranslation, but it's stuck, and it makes this point. And Proverbs 23, 7 in the King James English says this, Whatsoever a man thinketh inside of himself, so is he, right? In other words, how you think about your life determines so much of the quality of my life. Now, let me flip this script on you and let me change the pronouns and make this about you so much of your life so much of the quality of your life is wrapped up in how you think about your life let me say that to you again so much of your life of the quality of your life is wrapped up in how you think about your life it's it's the thought patterns that you get into what the apostle paul calls strongholds that keep you stuck. So what I want you to do is I want you to stand. We're going to read scripture together. As you stand, I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, I'm about to break some strongholds today. Would you do that? Say that to somebody. This scripture will be on the screen. I'll read it aloud from the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians. This is what it says. For though we live in the world. How many of you live in the world? Okay, some of you are not sure. You do. <laughs> we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Now, when you're reading the scriptures, it's always very helpful to have an understanding of the situation of the writer of that scripture. And this was written by the Apostle Paul. And he was writing to the Corinthians in ancient Turkey. And the way that it worked in Paul's day is Paul would go, a Jewish man, he would go to a, a town or a city, he would go to the Jewish synagogue, he would stand up and teach and talk about a concept they all understood as Jewish people, about the Messiah, and he would say, the Messiah that you've been waiting for has come in Jesus, and you could trust him with your life, and you could give him your life, and you could follow him, and you'd have a better leader for your life, and the people who agreed with that would follow the way of Jesus, and they would become the first Christians, and then, and then Paul would say to someone, you're the leader that God has uh, set up to lead this little community, this local gathering this local church and then he would move on to another town and then he would write letters back to those places where he planted churches and say this how are you doing and this is what's going on right here he's writing back and what was happening for Paul is that the Corinthians were saying something to him that for most of us would devastate us on some level especially if you're a leader and 
I will tell you, it's, a, I think, a secret fear of every leader. I think it's a secret fear of mine. Uh, and this is, what they were, this is what they were saying about him. They were saying, Paul, you're not that impressive. We know you, and we don't think you're that great. Every leader you know wants to be thought of as great. And when you go, you know what? You're just a human being, and we know your faults, and we don't think you're all that in a bag of chips. And Paul uh, heard this come to him, like you and I would hear this come to us, and he didn't do what we normally do with a message like that when someone is critical of us. He didn't launch what I call the 3D defense. You know what the 3D defense is? We deflect, we, def- we, de- we deny, and we defend. Right? That's what we do when a message like that comes to us. And, and when we hear something like that, something negative about us, what most of us do is what I do with my air compressor in my garage when I'm done using it. You know, I have this air, pre- air compressor, and I hook up a hose to it, and I've got, um, I've got two different nail guns, and I love both of my nail guns, and I love compressed air. How many of you guys love the women, too? I'm not being sexist, right? It's an amazing tool. And it holds this tank of compressed air that then shoots out a nail at force, and you can drive it into whatever you're making. And when I'm done with it, what I do is I unplug the hose, and on the bottom is this little nozzle. You guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't. But I take this little nozzle, and I go like this. Turn it, and it goes like this. And I let out all of the compressed air. See, when someone says something like that to us, about us, it's like we just let all of the hope out of our tank. Someone just turned the nozzle and went, you feel that, don't you? When someone says that about you? Now, what Paul does is, is he shifts the conversation. And this is an important thing for your life. It's an important insight about how your life works that if you'll take it in and let it sit on you and sit in your mind and heart, it can change you. Here's, here's what it is. Your life, the quality of your life, is wrapped up in how you think about your life. Then how you think about your life determines how you see your life. And then how you see your life determines how you deal life to the people around you because you're in relationship with other people. Do you see the connection? Let me say it to you again. How you think about your life determines how you see your life. And then how you see your life determines how you deal life to the people around you. See, it's your thoughts become who you think you are, becomes how you deal with people. This is what we think about our thoughts. We think that the thoughts that we have inside of us stay on the inside and they never come out. We think that our thoughts stay internalized, but they don't. Your thoughts get externalized and become, they come out of you in the way that you act toward and treat other people and what you pass on to other people. It's why when you have a child that comes in and they come in from school and somebody said something to them or they had a challenging assignment and they come in and they sit down and they say, I'm so stupid. As a parent, all of your warning bells go off and you say, oh this is not good. I, I don't want my child to have this thought about themselves, to take some 
simple experience, it's, it, a simple, simple experience in their life and translate it into a message about themselves, how they think about themselves, and how they see themselves. And I don't want them to begin to see themselves as dumb, because if they see themselves as dumb and this thought pattern roots itself into them, then what's going to happen is they're going to try for the rest of their life to get affirmation. And I want to stop it all the way back here at the level of the thought. right? For some of you, you just found out why it is that you're trying to get affirmation, because way back here, a thought planted itself in you. It became how you saw yourself. And then it became what you dealt to people around you. It's what my mom used to call stinking thinking. And it's why everyone that I know is a dealer of something, right? Now, most of us, what we deal is in the negative. We, the hope that that little valve has been pushed on our air compressor of our heart, and the hope has drained out of our life. And so what we do is we deal out of the negative. It's why we believe the bad. It's why we look for the dirt. It's why we have strongholds in our thinking. It's why we deal out of the stinking thinking, because the hope tank is empty, and so we deal out of the emptiness. That's why we struggle with the negative so often. And everybody deals. I'll give you some examples. You, you might, the thing you might deal is that you deal disappointment. Now, maybe you've had happen in your life what I've happened, had happened in my life, and you've had to file an insurance claim for any uh, number of reasons. And what's happened is you found out, A, insurance is a racket. Can I get an amen? <laughs> right? <laughs> Great. That's the one amen line in the whole mess. Okay. <laughs> you find out that it's a racket, and you're disappointed. And so what you want to do is you want to feel better about your disappointment. And so you take and you go to someone else, and you say, ain't it awful? Ain't it terrible? Ain't it, ain't it, just, ain't it just the worst thing that this would ever happen in our life? And what you try to do is you want someone else to see the disappointment that you have. And in the process of doing that, what you're dealing to that other person is you're dealing disappointment to them. Or you could deal in cynicism, and you could look at organizations or leaders or people that you work with, and, and because they're human beings and they make mistakes, you don't see the mistakes that they make or the human side of them. You just see them as having failed you, and so you think that everybody's like that, and so you want to commiserate with someone else. And so you, what the, the message that you deal is you deal cynicism, and, and what you're trying to say to the other person is, see, see we all know that people can't be trusted. Or you deal in fear because someone somewhere betrayed a confidence or because miscommunication happens in life like it does. And so what you want to do is you want to commiserate. You want someone else to feel your pain. And so you, you basically, when you deal fear, you're saying, let's see, I told you you'd get hurt. We all deal something. We all, we all deal uh, negative things. It's, it's the stinking thinking. It's what Paul calls the weapons of this world. Now, the word that he translates, that is used right there in the NIV is world, and it's actually the, the Greek word for our flesh or our experience as human beings. And let me see if I can translate for you what's behind that word. Uh, I think our emotions, our flesh, is, is like an algorithm uh, that, that causes us to do odd things. You know, when you open up your Netflix that you see a different Netflix than I see. 
And the Netflix that you see is based on an algorithm. It's a mathematical equation that watches what you watch. Uh, when you log on Facebook, it sees what you try to buy or what you click on, and it gives you suggestions. It's why when my Netflix, Netflix comes up and it's one of my kids has watched Scooby-Doo, and Netflix says, because you watched Scooby-Doo, we think you would like. My Netflix is different than your Netflix. My emotions are like that. They're like the algorithm that processes how I see what I think is happening in front of me. And what happens is our thoughts become like this, like this stronghold, like this grip on us. They become this algorithm that filters everything that we see. And, and our thoughts become like a boomerang. You've had this ha happen, haven't you? Where you've had a thought that you wish you could get rid of. And you, so you take the thought and you go, I'm getting rid of that thought. And what you don't realize, it's like a boomerang. And you think you got rid of it for a second. Hits you upside the head. And you go, well, that was dumb. You know, it's uh, over and over again, right? This feedback loop that you can't get out of. Our, our flesh, our emotions are like that. And Paul, what Paul is saying is, listen, that's how everybody deals with it. Everybody has a tendency to deal from the negative, and the result of that whole process, the, the, the weapons of this world, dealing disappointment and cynicism and fear, is that it leaves a residue on us of shame. When I was a junior higher, my family lived in Springfield, Missouri. Springfield, Missouri is kind of the heart of the Ozarks. And the Ozarks have a lot of caves, and so we would go caving. It's called spelunking, if you're a native. And we would go spelunking, and we would go down into the caves. And when we would be there, we would, on some points, we'd have to crawl on our belly. We'd have to rub against the wall. And when we came out of that experience, we had on our clothing a residue that stayed with us from our experience. And the reason that we all cogitate on all of these thoughts that we have is because we think that everybody else has had our same experience. They have been into our same cave, and they have not been into our same cave. But that's why we deal in the negative so often, because we have the residue of the negativity that we've experienced, that we have a tendency to pass on. And Paul says, those are the weapons of the world, and we, we fight a different battle. So here's, here's my question, and it's the question of this series. If you're going to be dealing something, why not decide that you're going to go ahead and deal hope? I mean, you're going to deal something, right? Why not deal hope? Now, here's what I know. I know that you can't give hope if you don't have hope. Because even when I say that, some of you say, but I, I'm so stuck in some of those patterns. You're naming some of the things that I'm struggling with, and I have no idea how to get out of that. I, I would suggest to you that you have to measure your hope quotient, your HQ. You, you know, when you were young, you might have taken an IQ test, your intelligence quotient, and your intelligence quotient measured your ability to connect thoughts and ideas and how fast you could do that. And you may have even been given a message about your worth and your value based on a number that was your intelligence quotient. Well, people who study these things say that actually in human interaction, it's not your intelligent quotient that's the most important thing. It's your EQ, your emotional quotient, your ability to understand your own emotions and then the emotions of the, the people around you and manage that relationship. I would suggest that even more important than that is your hope quotient, is your HQ. 
How much hope do you have in you? Because if you have no hope in you, you cannot pass hope on. This is how the Apostle Paul said it to the Christians in Rome. He said, listen, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not leave a residue because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through what? We just spent six weeks studying the what? The Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so what Paul does is he unpacks for us how we can get beyond those negative thought patterns to hope. Now, I, I need to tell you that uh, this has a warning label on it. If it were a product, there would be a warning label that said, if you're going to grow your HQ, here's what you're going to face. Because you have to increase your hope quotient first, and then you can tear down the strongholds. And, and Paul unpacks for us this kind of puzzle about how we exactly go about doing that. And here's, here's let me give you three things that you're going to have to do if you're going to get beyond the negative thought patterns that you have and become a person who deals in hope. And this is the first thing, is that you ha to become a hope dealer it means you have to understand that you're going to have a fight on your hands. I, I want to I get nostalgic for a minute, and I want to go way back to what my kids call way back in the 1980s. And I think it was on Thursday nights, uh, we'd sit down at the television, and this was back when you had to get up and walk to the TV to turn the channel, or adjust the rabbit ears, remember those, some of you? And uh, we would sit down, I, again, I think it was Thursday night, and we would turn it on, I think it's 7 o'clock, and then the theme music would come on. Right, all the guys were like, yeah. And it was, it was my favorite show, The A-Team. And there was uh, Hannibal, and there was Face, and there was Crazy Mad Dog Murdoch, and there was B.A. Baracus, played by Mr. T. Oh, and uh, I'd watch this show. It was my favorite show, and, and it was just like a formula. They just repeated the same episode and just put new circumstances. Because near the end of every episode, there would be the bad guys that they've now decided they're going to have to overcome, and they're going to fight. And then they, there would be this scene where you would see every member of the A-team getting all of their weapons together. And the music would keep, bum, bum, bum. they'd get a grenade launcher. And, and then you would see them, and, the, and at some point in the show, the van, the black and red van would go shooting through the air. And then they would shoot, you know, and they would win, right? They, they, had, they knew they were going to fight, and so they loaded up on the right kinds of weapons. And what Paul is saying is that you need to understand that when you go to be a hope dealer, you're going to have a fight on your hands, and you're going to have to have a different kind of a weapon. You're going to have to have a hope shield. You're going to have to have a hope launcher. You're going to have to have a hope cannon that you lob hope into people's lives with. You're going to have to have a hope gun. You're going to have to have a different kind of weapon, Paul says, that has God's power to demolish strongholds. Now think with me for a second about God's power. With a word... God spoke, and what you and I experience as our created reality leapt into being. That's power. When God was in flesh, when he was walking our earth as Jesus Christ, and a man had a sickness or an illness, he would just go and he would touch him, and the illness would leave his body. I mean, that's power. When Jesus' body was in the tomb, God's power came into Jesus' body and rose him from the dead. Now, do you think if that power did all of those things, that that power could take the weapon of hope and change how you experience your reality? I mean, completely, right? So this is the second thing, is you have to understand, though, what it is that you are fighting. And, and Paul uses this image of a stronghold. Uh, it would be like a, a fortified 
enclosure. Think about a medieval castle with a moat around it and the gates shut down and it's impenetrable. It might have been going through Paul's mind because around the time he wrote this letter, there were a group of Jews in a place called Masada. Masada was this, uh, this, this bluff out in the desert and it was surrounded by cliffs on all sides and there was one entrance. And the Romans went and took, took them over a year to lay siege against the fortress of Masada because it was impenetrable. You couldn't get there. And for many of us, the negativity is like an impenetrable fortress. We have no idea how our life could be any different because we're like, I don't, I don't even know how you would even change that. I don't even know what you would do to make that different. Uh, I, we, we don't really have a current example of a fortress like that. Uh, the closest I could come up with is when my parents were missionaries uh, in Africa. We were flying home uh, and we fl- flew through London, England. And I remember as a five-year-old, we went to Buckingham Palace and at Buckingham Palace, they have, uh, I believe it's every day, they have the changing of the Queen's Guard. These people in the red, you've probably, probably seen these guys. Now, I'm stealing these pictures because this was back before the iPhone 10 and the Galaxy S8. And I, so I'm just stealing these pictures as my childhood experience. But I vividly remember uh, being on my dad's shoulders behind, on the other side of the gates, and, and thinking that I'm going to see this spectacle. And we waited, and we waited, and we waited. And finally, I think someone came out and said, listen, today they're not doing the changing of the guard. And I, if I'd, my five-year-old self had had the sense, I would have said, but we flew here from Africa. Come on. <laughs> but here's what I realized. For many of us, see, hope is on the other side of the gates. And for many of us, we, we just feel, when even the idea of that we would have hope in our life, what it feels for us like is we're sitting on our dad's shoulders And we can only see it from a distance, and it's never going to happen. That's how many of us feel about hope. It's on the inside, and we'll never get there. Now, Paul says that that this fortress, this impenetrable thing, has three interlocking apparent realities. I say apparent because they're not really real. But he says they, they function as a system that keeps us trapped. And he says a stronghold is made up of these three things. The first one is, is arguments. He says uh, we demolish arguments. The word there means a, a line of thinking, um, a, a philosophy of life, uh, the way that everybody sees what you do. It's a pattern of thought. It's what everybody thinks. Did you know you would radically change your life if you would simply just question what everybody thinks? And part of the reason you have the struggles that you have is you're just going along with what everybody thinks. Paul says this is a key piece of a stronghold. What everybody, it's just what everybody thinks. It's what you're supposed to think. The second thing he says that's the key piece of that that puzzle is he calls it a pretension or every pretension. It's it's the idea of of someone who's pretentious, who thinks they're better than us or who who is exalted in their opinion. And, And let me translate that for you. It's the weight that you give to the opinions of the people in your life. It's why some of you still are trying to please a parent that may even be dead. Because you weighted their opinion so highly that you can't ever seem to live up to it. It's why you still believe that what what your first husband said about you is true about you. It's why you, because you weighted it. You said, oh, that's, a pin, that's the most important, I give it the weight. 
It's why what your sister used to say about you when you were kids still lodges inside of you because you gave it weight. You lifted it up as an opinion that was worth your, worth your time. And Paul says, you have to get rid of that. You have to, you have to see it for what it is. You, you made the decision to weight that person's opinion. And then he says, you have to take every thought captive. And he's, he's referring there to the, the, the kind of inner dialogue that you and I have all of the time. Now, I don't know if you're like me. I know not, not everyone is um, like me, uh, like Todd. Uh, but I have in my own head this inner critic. And it's not directed usually outward. It's directed inward. And I'm not entirely sure where it is. If you're a psychologist, you talk to me afterwards. You can help me figure out where it comes from. Uh, but I have this just voice that will constantly criticize me if I don't do what I feel like ought to have been done. And I, without even really thinking about it, will sometimes hear my, the voice in my own head say, you idiot. Or I'll do something, or I'll say something, and I'll, I'll walk away, and I'll go, oh, you're such a moron. Now, it was, a, it was a revelatory moment for me when someone said to me, if you had friends that talked to you the way you talked to yourself, would you be friends with them still? And so what Paul does with these three things, he gives us the anatomy of stinking thinking. It's, the, it's the, the conjoining together of the things that we think everybody thinks. It's the, the weight that we've given to people's opinions in our life that we lift up and say, well, they must be right. And then it's the messages that we tell ourselves about those things. And Paul says they become like an impenetrable fortress. They become a stronghold. Uh, let me give you some examples. One of the things that, on the outside, it makes no sense is, uh, and I deal with this on a somewhat frequent basis as a pastor, is a, a woman will come and she will talk about how her spouse or boyfriend is abusing her in some way, shape, form. It could be emotional, it could be verbal, sometimes physical. And if you've ever dealt with someone going through that very horrific scenario, you know that they're not, they're, they're stuck inside of a, a feedback loop in their own mind about that. Because from the outside, you just say, well, just leave. I mean, you don't, that's abuse. I mean, you need to separate yourself from that. But all three of these things keep that person trapped. So there are these, there are these voices that say, well, it, I wouldn't ever want to be the one to leave. What will people think? There's this thing out here that everybody thinks. And then there's these weighted opinions that the woman has usually given. And said, well, what he says is this, and what my dad says is this. And, and I have my mom, she went through the same thing, and what she says is this. And, and those opinions are so weighted. And then there's this negative self-talk that, that says, well, I must, I must just deserve this. And you're, you're then inside the impenetrable fortress known as abuse. Or it's someone who uh, abuses the most common drug in our country, uh, it's alcohol, and the, th the thing they think that everybody thinks is, well, everybody drinks, I mean, everybody just knocks back a cold one at night, I mean, I just need to calm my nerves a little bit. And then you weight those opinions of everybody around you, and you say, well, you know, I mean, I see all the advertisements on television, and you know, all of my friends drink, and then you tell yourself that it's okay, and you just need to unwind a little bit. And pretty quickly, 
when you go through all of that, you're in this impenetrable fortress known as alcoholism. Or maybe you want to better yourself, right? You want to go get an education, but there's this fortress of thinking that keeps you from doing that, and, and the message that everybody around you seems to say is, well, don't try to think you're better than us, because you're not. And you've weighted the opinions of people in your life, maybe an uncle, or maybe a grandpa, or maybe your mom, or maybe the guy that you work with, and they, they'll say things like, well, you know people with an education, they just think they're better than everybody else, and you don't want to be like those people. And then you tell yourself your own thoughts, well, this is all my life is ever going to be, and this is all the way it's going to be. And what happens pretty quickly is you're now in the impenetrable fortress known as ignorance. So what Paul says is you have to take, this is the third thing, you have to take a different strategy to take apart the stronghold, or you will always stay inside the impenetrable fortress, and you'll never get out. So what he says we do with the arguments is, is the word he uses there is to demolish, and it can mean several different things. Even hearing that you don't have to accept what everybody thinks about you and about your life, just even hearing that for some of you is like putting dynamite at the bottom of the foundation and blowing apart the thing that's kept you stuck for years, right? Even just that. It can be that. It can be that simple. It can be that quick. For most of us, though, it's a little more like you have to lay siege to it. You have to set up siege works. And you have to set up all kinds of things that will push the wall over. Or it might be for you that you have to dismantle things and you take it out this brick and then you take out that brick and then you take out this cornerstone and then you take out this foundation and you pull, you pull things down. See, that can, be the, that can be the reality for some of us. But we have to demolish the argument, Paul says. And then people's opinions. See, then you just have to do, you have to say, okay, I'm going to take these people's opinions down off of the pedestal and realize that they're just people. It was just my dad. It was just my first husband. That was just my sister. They're just a person like me. Why am I weighting their opinions so highly? I don't have to be bound by their opinion of me. I don't have to do that anymore. And then Paul says you have to take every thought captive. You have to change your self-talk. That's why when we talk about reading the scriptures and praying and meditating on God's word, what you're doing when you do that is you're changing your self-talk from you idiot to, oh, I'm the son that God always wanted and he loves. From you're a moron to you're my beloved son. I'm so pleased in you. You, you, have, to, you have to win the mental game or the mental game wins you. But you can't, see, you, you, can't ever, you can't ever be a dealer in hope if the tank has been emptied of hope, right? You've got to figure out how to knock down the stronghold that has kept you stuck for years. And then, once you get inside and you can say, okay, inside is the hope, then you can pick up the hope and you can deliver the hope to someone. You can go to school and you can deliver hope. You can go to your workplace and you can deliver hope. You can go to the gym and you can deliver hope. You can go to your kids and you can deliver hope. You can go to your grandparents and you can deliver hope. You can go to your neighbors and you can deliver hope. You're, not, you're dealing something totally different. That's how you become a hope dealer. You've got to deal with your own lack of hope. <laughs> so I want to I invite you to, to sign up to be a dealer. I mean, you didn't know you were being initiated into a gang of dealers today, but I want to initiate you into a gang of dealers. I'm not going to make this emotional. I just, I, I want this to be a choice. Uh, you can see down front are these 
pieces of wood, they spell out hope. And in the first service, some people came up. And, and you, you may say, I, I know I'm already, I'm, I'm in on, I want to be a hope dealer. Yeah, I, I'm all for that. And I want you to come up and put your, write your name. It just says, I'm going to be a hope dealer. We're going to hang this up for the next several weeks. But you may, you may just say, you know what? I, I'm not even sure I could get there. Because I feel so trapped by what's in But I want to. And with God's help, I'm going to get there. And if it takes me a year of laying siege to this stronghold in my life, then I'm going to get there and I'm going to become a hope dealer. So I'm going to, in just a second, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to give you a blessing. And if it's your choice to be a hope dealer, then as, after you're dismissed, I want you to come up. There's pens down here. And I just want you to sign your name and say, I'm going to be a hope dealer. I'm going to make that what my life is about. I don't have to stay stuck. I don't have to deal disappointment. I don't have to deal cynicism. I don't have to deal fear. I can deal hope. So let me pray for you. Uh, God, for many of us, we have been stuck for years. by strongholds in our thinking. We've been stuck for years by people's opinions of us. And we want to break free from that. We, we finally see the cage that we have been in. And we don't want to be in it anymore. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit coming in us and through us, that you would make us into hope dealers. That as a church, we'd be a hope church. That hope would become normal in the region. That hope would become normal in our factories. That hope would become normal in the mill. That hope would become normal in our schools. That hope would become normal in our neighborhoods. Because we're there. You sent us there. You showed us how to break free, and then you sent us there. So we want to do that. We want to be a part of that. So we're going to need your help. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to set people free. Thank you for freedom. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So we ask for it in your name. And everybody that wanted it said, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me. Receive this blessing as you leave. May you know that you are sent to love God, to love people, to serve the world in Jesus' name, and to be a hope dealer. So I want to invite you to come and sign up for our gang. See ya.